after a long night of bogus trials, bruising accusations and brutal beatings, the Bible tells us that Jesus was handed over. I'll be reading out of John chapter 19. If you have a Bible, you might wanna turn there. John chapter 19, verse 16. John 19, 16. While you're turning, I will tell you this is the one time a year where the gravity and the weight of what we're studying, what we will look at, needs to be felt. There is joy in these things. There is goodness beyond the way the world views joy and goodness. There is a depth to this, obviously, but we want to sense and feel the weight of what took place. And so, John 19, 16, he, that is Pilate, then handed him, that is Jesus, over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Hebrew is Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. That is, Yeshua, Hanazarene, Vamalech, Ha-Yahudim which is interesting because as an acrostic, that would spell out the Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Therefore, verse 20, many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but write that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Let's change this up. Let's make it different. And Pilate answered, what I've written, I have written. And then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own house And after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All four gospel writers note this. All four accounts mention it. Each one describes a dark snapshot of callous greed 
of what seems to be on the periphery of the story, of what's really taking place, what this is really about. And the focal point being Jesus on the cross, all four gospels mention this sideways glance at a, a seedy luck of the draw. Matthew 27, 35 says, when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. Mark 15, 24, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. Luke 23, 34 says, Father, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. We see the story as well right here in John 19. All four mention this. Certainly the barbaric betting of a few banal soldiers isn't worth the mention, isn't worth taking notice, and yet the Bible the Bible repeats this sordid circus sideshow four times in each gospel. Hey, I'll tell you what, one mention in the Bible is enough for me. But four mentions, four focal points, four moments in this story of the crucifixion of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, four mentions of this, this fringe event that shouldn't even be happening. This thing to the side that is callous and cruel and insensitive. And yet all four writers write it down, mention it, draw our attention to it. To strip a person of clothing for crucifixion was part of the shaming ordeal. That's what the Romans did. It wasn't just about an execution, it was about shame and humiliation, and Jesus, for his part, absolutely abhorred it. Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Need to understand, there was nothing about Calvary that was joyful for Jesus. He despised it. The joy set before him is what he would experience upon exiting the tomb, upon seeing his beloved, upon the accomplishment of all things. But the cross, the crucifixion, the shame, the dishonor was despised by the Lord. But the four-time mention of this gaming for garments is substantial and is actually worth the sideways glance, in terms of what it reveals for us. And I wanna hone in on this just for a moment tonight as we consider the gravity of what took place at the cross. What's amazing about the story and difficult, if we were to take each tiny instance, each moment, each verse, each word of each verse and break it down and talk about it, we would be here for hours trying to understand all the subtle nuance as well as the glaring truisms of the cross of Calvary. This is just a piece, but it's significant, and I think we need to consider it tonight. Again, in verse 23, it says, then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. A typical Jewish man had a daily attire consisting of four to five elements. A turban, sandals, an inner robe, which was full length and usually 
uh, long-sleeved, made of cool linen or soft cotton. And then if he was well off or if it was an important moment, he would have a tunic that would go over that. The tunic was a heavier woolen garment, woven, uh, sleeveless, uh, knee length typically, and worn outside the robe. Not underneath, but outside the robe as an outer garment. And then the fifth element would be a sash or a belt. So you understand all that. A, a turban, uh, sandals for the feet, an inner robe against the body, a tunic outside of the inner robe, and then a sash that wrapped around the whole thing. In addition, a detail of soldiers to a typical crucifixion, and, and this, as far as Rome was concerned, would be somewhat typical, was four men. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't other soldiers around to keep watch, especially on this Passover weekend. But four men were required to do the job of the crucifixion. They would take the criminals and transport them out to Golgotha, nail them to the crosses, dig three post holes. All three crosses would be then propped up and dropped down with a painful jolt. And now all the soldiers had to do was settle in and keep watch. And that's what they did. That's when the gambling began. And for a soldier in Rome, this was typical. The belongings of a crucified criminal were considered a soldier's gratuity. Basically, they were his tip for the work done that day, for a job well done. And so they would gather around, huddle there, and they would roll sheep knuckles, cast lots. One would get the turban, and then another the sandals. A third soldier would take the inner robe, and then a fourth one would win the sash as they rolled for these things. The fifth article that belonged to Jesus was the tunic. The tunic, which becomes of great significance, again, in all four Gospels. I want to give you four things to note. As the soldiers ignorantly rolled for Jesus' clothes, first they played right into, number one, a prophetic authentication. A prophetic authentication. This was, first of all, a very special tunic. This was unique, probably the nicest thing that Jesus owned. Probably a handcrafted gift that had been given to him by a devoted follower. Maybe one of the women who, who traveled, who, who followed his ministry. Maybe Mary Magdalene or Salome or, or Joanna. Uh, maybe Susanna. I don't know. I, I'm going to have to ask around when I get to heaven. Somebody gave this to him. This is not something he would have purchased for himself, and it's certainly not something that a homeless Galilean would carry around. It was unusual gear for someone like Jesus, this itinerant rabbi who he himself said, there, I have, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. To have a tunic, a seamless woven tunic of such craftsmanship would be unusual. Jesus had nothing of value to his name but this tunic. Of course, Jesus' name is of immeasurable value today. Philippians 2.10 tells us that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, will we confess now or will we confess then? If you have not confessed now, I plead with you, confess today Jesus Christ as Lord. Accept, receive Jesus as Lord. 
because to confess it then will be to confess it in fear and terror and realization of who he really is. To confess it now is to confess it in terms of forgiveness and grace and redemption and reconciliation. So Jesus' name of immeasurable value, but Jesus, again, didn't have anything of value, perhaps but this hand-woven tunic, which was, as far as the clothing is concerned, far more valuable than the entire rest of the lot. So the soldiers are looking at it. They gather it up. There are four pieces that they gamble for, but then there's just this one, this final piece, this really nice piece. Let's not take it apart. Let's not shred it. Let's roll the dice for this one. Verse 24, so they said to one another, let us not tear it, let's cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Again, all four gospels mention this, but it's only John who connects the prophetic dots. John who quotes from Psalm 22 Verse 16, let me read it to you. Psalm twenty-two, sixteen. for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. And it is a mind-blowing prophecy. So remarkably specific David wrote that a thousand years before it took place. We call it David's Psalm of the Cross because it describes a crucified man. It reads as if Jesus were speaking it himself, he is, through David, speaking it himself of the experience of Calvary. Psalm 22, which in and of itself, again, is a remarkable psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the psalm of Jesus on the cross and yet written a thousand years ahead of time. Bringing together this idea of pierced hands and feet and of of people gambling for garments, dividing them up, casting lots for them, it's bizarre. It's strange writing. When David wrote it down, no doubt people heard the song and went, well, that's obscure. What are you talking about, David? And they wouldn't have. They couldn't have known. And yet, every well-studied yeshiva student should have been able to test on this. That is, where do you find in Scripture the writing that talks about being pierced, about casting lots and dividing up garments. Where would you find that? And a good student of the Hebrew scriptures would say, uh, that's the David's Psalm, that's Psalm 22. Would be able to go right there. They should have recognized it, the Jews standing there. To see what was taking place, they should have been able to see this is what was prophesied. Why didn't they? It was on the periphery. Again, it was off to the side. It was something so petty and so callous and so trivial. Something the Roman soldiers always do. Ignore them, pay no attention to them. And yet, what does the Spirit of God do with this? He raises it to the level of prophetic authenticity. To dial in prophetic truth. God's signature throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 41, 26, the Lord says, who has declared from the beginning that we might know? 
or from former times that we might say, he's right, or literally that we might say, right. (laughs) Surely there was no one who declared. Surely there was no one who proclaimed. Surely there was no one who heard your words. And then in Isaiah 44, verse seven, the Lord says, who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. And that's what God did through David in Psalm 22, giving prophetic authenticity to this moment on the cross as Jesus didn't fulfill this prophecy, but the ignorant Roman soldiers did exactly as the prophecy claimed. Again, prophecy is one of God's tools of divine authentication. It's one of the ways we know that the Bible is unlike any other book, that God writes in his signature, even with tiny little fringe events that normally no one would even notice. And he's going to do it again. That is, for every prophecy literally fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus, he will fulfill every prophecy literally in the second coming of Jesus. This is not metaphor. These are not the things of allegory. This is truth and God declaring ahead of time what is going to come. Jesus fulfilled all these things in his first coming. He will in his second coming as well. And in fact, the very night of his resurrection that would happen three days later, and we'll talk about it in three days, Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And what's marvelous in that statement is he's saying everything that was written about me has to be fulfilled. Not only what has, been take, what has taken place, not only what has been fulfilled, but what will be. It's gonna be fulfilled, my friends. So prophetic authentication. But this woven tunic is itself of special interest for another reason. A second thing to note, and that is a priestly announcement. A priestly announcement. If you'll keep your finger there in John and turn back to the Gospel of Mark. The two Gospels back, Mark chapter 14, I wanna show you something here that took place in a similar way and yet completely different. You'll see what I mean. Mark chapter 14, picking up in verse 60. This is during one of the unfair, unjust trials that were foisted upon Jesus on this night prior to crucifixion. For 12 hours, Jesus went from one trial to another, all six of them illegal, all six of them unjust. And before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, we see in verse 60 of Mark 14 that the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. The high priest tore his robes. According to Leviticus chapter 21, verse 10, the robe of the high priest was never to be torn. In fact, it was only torn on one occasion, and that was when the high priest himself died. They would take that robe on the day of his death, and they would tear it into strips, signifying the closure and the finality of that particular high priest's office to be now taken by another who would come in with his own new robe. And the strips that were torn from the high priest's robe were used actually as wicks in the lampstands in the temple. When Caiaphas tore his robe, he thought he was displaying a righteous outrage. Man, be careful with righteous outrage. Be careful with any kind of self-righteousness. We often are rather full of ourselves when we pull things like that. In reality, what Caiaphas inadvertently announced was the death of the Aaronic priesthood. For in the day that the high priest died, the robes are torn. In that day that he tore his robes, even as the great temple veil was about to be ripped right down the middle, signaling an end to the Mosaic sacrificial system and open access to the Lord himself. The the robe was torn. And we no longer now go to God through a priest, through a man, through some intermediary other than Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes, there is one God, one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony at the proper time. But listen, it's not only how the high priest tore his clothes that is so significant here. It's what he tore. For there in Mark 14, it says that the robe he tore, the word in the Greek is kiton, and that word kiton is better translated tunic. Same word that is used of the tunic of Jesus in John 19, 23. This is amazing to me. Whose tunic was not torn? Whose tunic that was seamless, woven in one piece, whose tunic was discussed among the Romans who said, let's not tear it. Tunic of Caiaphas was torn. The Aaronic priesthood, over. The tunic of Jesus was not torn, but was left whole. The ketone of Jesus, the tunic of our eternal high priest. Hebrews 6.19 says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And if you don't know who Melchizedek is, go back and listen to the teaching in Genesis 14. We talked about that. An eternal priesthood, not bound by law, not bound by keeping of commandments, but bound by the eternality of Jesus himself. Hebrews 7, 28, for the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, 
But the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. Hebrews 9.11 says, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So his tunic was not torn, even as his priesthood is eternal. But, but carry this through. Oh, get this. If Jesus is the great high priest, and he is, what does that make his followers? What does that make his people? 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Revelation 1, 6 tells us he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever, amen. Get this, listen, you have a high priestly calling, called by the high priest Jesus himself, so that no matter what you do with your life, As we all gather tonight, we listen and we talk about these things. We consider our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Understand, it doesn't matter what your profession is. It doesn't matter what your business is, where you are in life. If you're still in school, if you're out of school, if you're working some job, it doesn't matter. Hey, we're all stuck at home anyway, right? But you and I, if we belong to Jesus, are a royal priesthood. You're a royal priest. You are called to the priestly service of Jesus by his calling made alive in his lineage. But some gamble it away. Some think that they can buy it by their own religious efforts to stitch together their own righteousness. Others, they don't see value in it at all. They don't get it. Still others miss the whole thing. Prophetic authentication, a priestly announcement. But had you been standing before the cross that day, there's something that you could not have missed. Number three, the physical apparel. Again, verse 23 tells us the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts a part to every soldier. So again, the turban and the sandals and the inner robe and the sash. And also then number five, the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let us not tear it. Let us cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. Verse 25 says, therefore, The soldiers did these things. In Lane's commentary on the book of Mark, he writes, men were ordinarily crucified naked. Now, Jewish sensibilities dictated that men ought to not be publicly executed completely naked. And so when men were condemned to stoning, they were permitted a loincloth, according to the Mishnah. This wasn't a stoning. This was Roman crucifixion. 
And Lane says, whether the Romans were considerate of Jewish feelings in this matter or not, <laughs> well, it's unlikely that they cared. I used to struggle with this. I remember the first time some preacher somewhere when I was a kid suggested it and it grossed me out and it freaked me out and I couldn't get this horrific image out of my brain for a long time. And that's the idea of Jesus naked on the cross. It's an idea that's unthinkable to me, or at least it used to be, that he might have died in such shame and humiliation. I couldn't even imagine. But again, I remind you what the scripture says, Hebrews 12, 2, he endured the cross despising the shame. It was a shameful, humiliating ordeal. But understand that if he was, in fact, stripped naked on the cross in that most personal, physical apparel, think about it. What does that mean? When Jesus was lifted up on the cross of Calvary, he was not dressed like a common Middle Eastern Jew. Robe, turban, sandal, sash, tunic. Jesus was dressed in the physical apparel of all humanity. It's what he came to die for. It's why he was lifted up. He said in John 12, 32, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. By the way, the phrase all men in the NASB is not all men, it's just all. Pontus in the Greek. I will draw all to myself. Every last man, woman, and child. I will draw this world to myself. I will draw all attention to myself, and truly, if it hasn't happened for you, it will. I will draw all to myself. In heaven, the redeemed of humanity are gonna sing a new song to Jesus, who Revelation refers to as the little lamb slain. Revelation 5, 9, we will sing, worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation in the physical apparel of humanity. He looked like everybody looks when we are completely uncovered. Boy, these old bodies, <laughs> and I'm more aware of this old body than I ever used to be, these old bodies can't even withstand our own mortality. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse two, where Paul says, indeed, in this we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose, get that, you were made for that purpose. Why were you born naked coming into the world? So that you could be clothed, but not by linen or cotton or wool. So that you could be clothed be swallowed up by life. He who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave to us the Spirit as a pledge. That is the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and is our certainty of salvation, our awareness 
We know that we know that we're saved because the Spirit tells us, confirms to us that we are children of God. And if Jesus was in such physical, personal apparel, well, we know back in the story that there were at least two devoted disciples who didn't leave him that way. Look back at John 19. And let me pick it up here in verse 31, which says the Jews, because it was the day of preparation so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. To break the legs of a crucified criminal was to kill them in short order. Normally, crucifixion could last out three or four days. Jesus, in complete control, was done in six hours and gave up his spirit and said, Tetelestai, it is finished. But normally, they would live on and on and on, suffering in this cruel humiliation over a period of time. But to break their legs, they would hang down on the cross, not able to push themselves up, and they would asphyxiate. So break their legs so we can get them down off the cross because it's Shabbat. It's amazing how unfeeling humanity is in this story. It says, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out, which doctors tell us is significant. It indicates a burst heart. And he who has seen has testified, John writes, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe for these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. Exodus 12, 46. That was for the Passover lamb. You were not to break the bone of the Passover lamb. Neither were any of the bones of Jesus broken at Calvary. And again, verse 37, the scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Zechariah 12.10. Well, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted him permission. So he came and took his body away. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight, Note that, so they took the body of Jesus and they bound it in linen wrappings with the spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. I just want you to note this and remember this on Sunday morning. They would take these linen strips, they would work it through this mixture of aloes and spices and it would become moist and then they would wrap the body strip upon strip upon strip and that would harden, literally forming a cocoon, if you will, for the buried body. Don't forget that. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. I just wanted to mention that part of the story because what remarkable tenderness in the ugliness of this gambling that was going on, in the callousness of the people saying, break the legs, In the midst of this brutal, ugly story, we see such tenderness on the part of these disciples, literally caring for and and taking the body of Jesus, tenderly doing what was right and good and holy, keeping the custom of the Jews, 
as they wrap the body in complete tenderness, may we, on this Good Friday, remember to treat the body of Christ with the same kind of care. Who knew that the mindless, marginal, insensitive act of four soldiers casting lots over Jesus' clothes could be so personally relevant today? God did. He knew. But my friends, I wanna give you one more thing to consider tonight for the prophetic authentication, for the priestly announcement, even for the very personal, physical apparel. One last thought you gotta note here, and that is number four, the portion acquired. The portion acquired. The soldiers, again, cast lots for their bonus pay, their tips or their their dividends at the end of the day. Their extra portion for the day. So I wanna ask you a question as I make this final point. What is your takeaway from the cross? What are you taking away from the cross? What is your lot, as it were, from Calvary and from the cross? Again, we see Joseph of Arimathea. We see Nicodemus taking away the body of Christ. Their takeaway was a deep devotion to him. What's yours? The soldiers had their takeaway as well. They took away whatever garment that was divided up and whichever one of them gambled for and won the tunic, that was his takeaway. But notice this, the word lots in verse 24, they cast lots. And then quoting again out of Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, 18, for my clothing, they cast lots. The word lots in Greek is kleros. Kleros is also translated portion and or inheritance. Colossians chapter one, verse nine, for this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who, listen, who has qualified us to share in the kleros of the saints in light. That is to share in the portion, in the inheritance, or in the lot of the saints in light in life. If you throw your lot in with Jesus, he will be your portion. He will be your inheritance. He will be your lot in life. And Christ Jesus wants to clothe you. That nakedness I talked about before, oh, we can put on all manner of jeans and shirts and sweaters and shoes. We can cover our nakedness, but we all know, we all know we are vulnerable people. We all know that beneath the covering, there is a body that is going to die, is subject to death, is vulnerable. Look at what's going on right now. The fear and the panic and the dread and the the staying at home and all of the caution that we see in our culture and our world right now comes right down to this, that the body is uncovered, that the body is not invincible. What does Jesus want to do with these bodies. Isaiah 61, verse 10, 
I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. I call that garments of grace. God has grace for you, has grace for me to cover us. The nakedness of our mortality that we might put on immortality and that we might be so clothed and that we might rejoice as Revelation 19, seven says, let us rejoice and give the glory to him. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Jesus was stripped on the cross, was brutalized on the cross, bled out on the cross, that you, that I, might be clothed in garments of grace. That we might have eternal life. As the old hymn goes, when he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Oh, Jesus, thank you for the covering of your grace, for garments of salvation. Lord, I don't even know what it all is gonna look like. You talk about fine linen, white and clean. I wonder, will we have it like that? The, the inner robe and the turban and the, I've always wanted a turban, Lord and the sash, and the sandals, and the tunic. Lord, the covering that you provide for us, even now in this life, is a covering of immense confidence, of trust in your grace to heal and to save and to protect, and even should these bodies fail us now, to bring us home. Lord, I pray that you would pour out this very confidence of the garments of grace that you offer us. That our lot, our portion in this life and on into eternity, our inheritance, Lord Jesus, would be you. Oh, we love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for this good Friday. We thank you for enduring the cross, for despising the shame, and we worship the one who has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Tonight, Lord, we reaffirm our allegiance to you, our love for you, and our faithfulness to you, but Lord, because you were faithful first and because you loved first. So we bless and we praise the name of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. <music> 